Radio Influence. The future is now. This is Beyond the Badge on Radio Influence. A look inside the biggest and most controversial news stories you need to know now. One of the country's most relied upon law enforcement analysts, Vincent Hill. Hey, good evening and welcome to Beyond the Badge. I am your host, Vincent Hill, coming to you, of course, from Atlanta, Georgia. Today is Tuesday, January the 10th, 2017, and you could have been anywhere right now, but you decided to stop by RadioInfluence.com and listen to this crazy guy talk to you for just a few minutes about what's going on in the world today. And speaking of Tuesday, January the 10th, it's a very special day, at least for me. Today is my 44th birthday, and I'm very happy. I'm very blessed to say I woke up this morning on the side of the living, and I was able to say today's my birthday. And it reminds me of a song that I used to listen to growing up as a kid. It's a gospel song by the group The Winans, and the song is called Millions Didn't Make It, right? But I was fortunate enough, blessed enough to say I woke up this morning to live not only another day, but another year here on this earth. And there's a lot of people, like the song says, that did not make it to this day. There's a lot of people that did not make it to 44. So yes, there have been people spreading their old person's jokes towards me, family, friends, but it's cool. At the end of the day, I'm very blessed. I'm very happy to say I made it to 44. I made it another day. I made it another year. I could not ask for anything more. Now, let's get right into the show because we got a lot to cover. And speaking of millions not making it and people not seeing another year or another day, I know we all heard by now what happened in Fort Lauderdale this past Friday at the airport. Five people dead, six people wounded by a lone gunman who flew from Alaska down to Fort Lauderdale, well, from Alaska to Minneapolis to Lauderdale. He had checked a handgun while he uh, boarded the plane, which which is legal. He checked the handgun. He got the handgun back uh, when he got to Fort Lauderdale, went into a bathroom, loaded the gun, came out, and committed basically an act of terror inside the baggage claim area, of course, where there's no really no security, no one really watching. That's probably one of the biggest soft target areas of an airport, right? Because who thinks something would ever go wrong at baggage claim because you've gone through security at the other airport, you've gotten off the plane, you're just going to get your bags. So no one ever thinks that you're going to be a target, a soft target at a baggage claim area in an airport. But that's exactly what happened this past Friday in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Five people killed, many of those uh, older people, uh, 90 years old, in their 60s, in their 50s, uh, just killed by this individual. Uh, and his name was Esteban Santiago. He was 26 years old, out of Alaska. Now, before I get into it too much, I want to clear a few things up. There were a few reporters when this all started that broke uh, breaking news and they were saying because this individual was military, he was able to check his gun on the plane. Well, that is the furthest thing from the truth. Anyone who 
is legal, who has the legal right to own a gun, can check their gun at the airport, get it to their next location, then retrieve that gun and take it outside of the airport. So the fact that he was military had nothing to do with the fact that he got the gun on the plane. So let's clear that up right now. Now, of course, in the, the, the political climate that we're in right now, of course, there's words thrown out like terrorism, you know, radical Islam, all of that stuff, which hasn't been proven quite yet. So here's what we know so far. The individual was in the National Guard. He served a tour in Iraq. He was military. But does that necessarily mean terrorism? We don't know. But to that regard, let's look at terrorism. We know what the definition of terrorism is, correct? And let's look in history. Let's go back 20 plus years to Oklahoma City and another U.S. soldier who had served in Iraq, who killed over 160 people by blowing them up. That was terrorism. So we can associate it with radical Islamic terrorism. We can associate it with ISIS. We can associate it with this. But the fact is, any act like this on U.S. soil, whether it's done by ISIS, whether it's done by a U.S. soldier, a former U.S. soldier, is terrorism, right? But I think this particular case goes a little deeper than your basic, oh, it's terrorism because he had a beard, he was pointing one finger up in one of his Facebook pictures. I think there's a deeper lying issue here that people don't want to look at right now, especially, again, because of the political climate, right? And that factor that I think needs to be looked at is this individual's mental state. And later on in the show, we're going to have Fonda Bryant come on, who is a mental health advocate. She lives down in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I believe she can give good perspective into the mindset of this individual. And I'll also talk to her about the uh, the incident down in, in uh, Chicago where four thugs, and yes, I'm using the word thug even though mainstream media like CNN wouldn't use the word thug and called them misguided youth and that who just did something stupid. No, they were thugs because the definition of thug is someone that does violent acts. So that's exactly what happened in the city of Chicago. And in case you haven't heard, four uh, black individuals, two males, two females, kidnapped a mentally ill white male for hours, they tortured him, they beat him, they cut him, they made him say he loves black people, F white people, F Donald Trump. So now they're being charged with a hate crime. And I'm going to give my thoughts on those individuals here in just a little bit. But I want to talk to uh, Fonda about the, the tragedy of how this individual who was mentally ill was taken advantage of and subjected to some very, very sickening situations for hours now so this this esteban santiago again 26 years old former military uh he had served a tour in iraq i don't know exactly when uh but when he got back from iraq there were signs that his family said were 
obvious signs of PTSD. Now, post-traumatic stress syndrome, a lot of people don't believe it's a big deal. They don't believe it exists, but PTSD is very real. There's millions and millions of people affected by it. I think to this day, I'm affected by it. I mean, think about it. I went from military to police, and there's still certain things mentally that at the drop of a dime will make me jump or flinch certain sounds. There's certain ways I still have to sit that drive people crazy. They don't understand. That's all signs of PTSD. Sometimes loud booms like fireworks make me twitch inside because I have flashbacks of other things. So it's it's very real. It's very uh, in your face. But if you ignore those signs, if you think it's not real, then this could be the outcome. Again, I'm not saying that this individual went to the airport because he suffered from PTSD. It could be an act of terrorism. We don't know. But I do know that if he served in Iraq and he came home and his family saw a difference in him, then there's a problem. But it's more than that. Back in November, he went to his local FBI office and told them, hey, people are brainwashing me. They're making me watch videos of Iraqi insurgents. This is stuff he's telling the FBI in Alaska. So what did they do? They took his gun, the same gun, mind you, that he used to kill five people and wound six others. They took his gun. They did a mental evaluation. They could not find anything wrong with him. So they gave him his gun back. And a few months later, we have Fort Lauderdale. Now, it's easy to 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 Monday morning quarterback this whole thing, but I'm going to give my perspective for just a little bit, right? So you have an individual who went to the Iraq war or whatever he did over there. Don't know. He was a combat engineer. So he could have been in the front lines. He could have been in the back lines. We don't know. But you have this individual who went to his local office told them something basically is not right in my head. You take his gun, you evaluate him, but you find nothing wrong. You give him his gun back and boom. But I think there was an epic fail there because anytime the FBI wants to question someone who says, hey, look, I've been to Iraq. There's something wrong in my head. I think that should be turned over to mental health experts who specialize in post-traumatic stress. And why do I say there was an epic fail here? Because look no further than what the director of the Anchorage office of the FBI, Marlon uh, Richman, told reporters. During our initial investigation, we found no ties to terrorism. Therefore, he was free to go. Therefore, we gave him his gun back. Well, see, there's the problem. He went to the FBI. The FBI got tunnel vision and focused only on the word terrorism when he said, hey, people are brainwashing me into watching Iraqi insurgents. So they focused on terrorism. They knew this individual was former military. They knew he had been in a combat zone, but they did not look at 
Maybe there's a mental health issue and maybe we need to turn this over to the mental health professionals so we can get this individual the help he needs. Now, again, please, please, please don't get me wrong. I am not excusing what he did in Fort Lauderdale, Florida this past Friday. I am not ex- not making excuses that he took five individuals from their family. So please don't get that wrong. But I think there was a big, huge opportunity here to ha- to have prevented this had the FBI done what they were supposed to do, or should I say what they should have done. I don't know their protocol, but I just think it's common sense that if someone says, hey, there's people brainwashing me, then something is wrong with his brain that you should transfer that, refer that to people who specialize in things when people say there's something going on in their brain. And I know if if I was the family of any of those five who died, and think about this, he shot them in the head and in the face. If I was a family of any of those five, I would be asking those type of questions. Like, but this guy came to you. He came to my government and said, oh, I think there's something wrong with me. And the only thing you looked at was whether he was a terrorist. And you didn't bother to think that the guy may be off his rocker, off his meds, and that something could be seriously wrong with him. And you let him go. You gave him his gun back. And then he used that gun to kill my family a few months later. My family who was just celebrating a 90th birthday, going on a cruise. My family that was going on a wedding anniversary cruise. My family member that was just standing there trying to get their luggage. You dropped the ball, and now my family is dead because of it. If I was any of those families, you better believe those are the questions I would be having right now. So so what's next, right? So when you look at airport security, is it really, really that strenuous, right? So you go past TSA, you got somebody who's not making a lot of money, who likes to harass you if you have too much orange juice in your bottle or if you don't take your shoes off fast enough or if you walk through the metal detector and you forgot to take your belt off. But where's the real security? And I I mentioned earlier how baggage claim is a soft target. And think about this. When have you been in baggage claim and seen a very, very strong presence of armed security, whether it's police, airport police, uh, uniform security, military, what have you, where have you seen that? In an airport. Like, I fly quite a bit. I don't see it in the baggage claim area. So, wow, are you telling me that even after September 11th, there's this huge security hole in American airports? Well, absolutely, because we just proved that this past Friday, right? That there's this huge, huge hole in airport security in American airports. Now, when you go across other countries, when you go to, say, Switzerland and all of their security is out in full effect and you can see them and they have AR-15 straps strapped across their shoulder, 
Not too many people are going to want to mess with those individuals armed to take out a threat. Now, had we had that at Fort Lauderdale, guess what? He may have gotten one, he may have gotten two, but he wouldn't have gotten 11, 12, or 13 because they would have been on him just like that. Or he probably would have said, I have no chance, no chance to do what I plan on doing because of the security, because of the presence, because of the police presence here at this airport. He would have had to switch tactics or he would have had to change his plans completely, which, of course, could have led to the discovery of said plan, right? Because you switch tactics, you change plans, that gives people, investigators, time to learn of your plan. And I think there were signs even on his Facebook that now the FBI is saying was out there. But it goes back to what I said back in November. If he came to the FBI and he said he had mental issues and he said all of this was going on and the only thing you said was there's no ties to terrorism, well, how did you miss those signs that were on his Facebook back in November. How now, all of a sudden, is there this picture of him dressed in Iraqi-looking clothing with one finger up, which is the symbol of ISIS, but you didn't see that back then? Or why didn't you say, well, we're going to monitor this guy for several months and then maybe put him on a no-fly zone? All of those things that could have happened, could have, would have, should have, didn't happen, and now five people, five people are dead. He even told the FBI there were voices in his head urging him to fight for ISIS, but nothing happened. So again, we'll have this debate probably for a long time to come regarding this case. Was it terrorism? Was he radicalized over in Iraq? Or was this just a simple case of mental illness, PTSD, which sparked from the things he saw in Iraq, which no one diagnosed, and now we have Fort Lauderdale. I cannot stress enough how real PTSD is. It affects a lot of people, I'm telling you. It still affects me to this day, and it will probably affect me until the day I die. I deal with it. I hide it pretty well, I control it, but at the same time, it controls me. Because again, anytime you jump at certain noises, or anytime you have to sit a certain way, there's something mentally making you do that. Do you know how long it took me not to be the guy sitting at the very back of a restaurant with my back up against the wall so I could see everything that was going on and so I could plan my escape route just in case the stuff hit the fan. It took a long time for me to break out of that and to this day I still sit certain ways so I can see everything that's going on. I still don't like people sitting behind me in a car because in fear they may shoot me in the back of the head. All of this stuff is probably what this individual that did this in Fort Lauderdale was dealing with. Now on to Chicago, and here we go again. Chicago making history, and of course I talked about them last week and their ridiculous murder rate, 762 black-on-black crime, 3,550 shootings, 
But now Chicago's making history for another reason. So there were four individuals, four thugs, I should say, who decided they were going to go kidnap this white individual who is mentally challenged, kidnap him for several hours, torture him, beat him, and say, F white people, F Trump, say you like black people, say you like black people, and anytime he wouldn't say it, they would beat him, they cut him, they had this knife, they cut his hair, all of this crazy crap, right? And now they're being charged with the hate crime. And there was a few stories I watched about this, and one on CNN, the Clinton News Network, and Don Lemon, who I respect highly as a journalist because he has done great things. He's come a long way. You don't get your own show on CNN by being a pushover. But, you know, Don Lemon said something to the effect of, and I quote, I don't think this is evil. I think these are young people, and I think they had bad home training. What? So, just so I'm clear, you kidnap someone, which is a felony crime. You torture someone, which not only is a felony, but is by definition evil. You subject them to saying things that they would not say otherwise with the intimidation, with the threat of violence, like holding a large knife over them and cutting their scalp open and kicking and punching them. But that's not evil. That's bad home training. Mm, no. Bad home training is leaving the toilet seat up. Bad home training is not flushing the toilet. Bad home training is not washing your hands after you use the bathroom. But to go out and plan to kidnap someone, to plan to torture them, and oh, and by the way, oh, we're going to film it on Facebook Live. That is evil. It's evil and it's stupid. Oh, I know. Let's film it on one of our Facebook accounts. No one will really ever guess who the hell we are. And then, oh, well, how did we get caught? Because, contrary to what Don Lemon says, it's not your home training. It's your ignorance and your stupidity. And if it is your home training, then I question your parents. That would be okay with you doing this. It had nothing to do with home training. It had to do with the mentality that's going on in the city of Chicago and everywhere else across the world. And I've talked about it before with the administration of how everything's hunky-dory. We can do whatever we want as long as the police don't show up. We can do whatever we want as long as we don't get beaten up by the police or the police don't use force against us. We can do whatever we want. We can kidnap people. We can make them say we love black people. We can do all of that. We can go out and rob and steal because guess what? Here's a surprise. Each one of the individuals already had a criminal record in Chicago, but I'm going to flip it. I'm going to flip it. Let's just say 
that someone watching that video would have called police in real time and said, hey, there's four individuals beating this individual right now. It's, it's streaming on, on FaceTime live. They're at this address. And let's just say, because remember, what brings police to the scene? Crime, not color, crime. So let's say police show up. Then they have exigent circumstances to know that there's a crime going on inside the house. Then guess what? Boom, they kicked the door down. Then boom, let's say one of the four, two of the four, three of the four, four of the four resist arrest, and then police have to use force based on the level of resistance of the individual. And guess what? One of the individuals was armed with a knife, which is deadly force. So let's just say that... Again, white police officers, because they got a call, not because there were black people at this location, but they got a call of a crime, showed up, had to use deadly force, or even the least amount of force, and it was on video. Then guess what? Everyone right now, Don Lemon, who says, oh, these kids aren't evil, it's just bad home training, would have been the main one saying, look at these White officers, here we go again, having a conversation about how police deal with black individuals. Well, forget the whole 20, 30 minutes of this poor, mentally ill white individual, white, black, whatever, I don't care. The fact that they had him in there, the fact that they were torturing him, everyone would have been so willing to forget that because the police had to show up and use force against these individuals who were already using force. Because remember, police react to the situation. If they know there's someone being tortured, if they know there's a knife, they know someone's being beaten, they're not coming, trust me, they're not coming to sing spirituals. This is not a kumbaya moment when we get there. We are coming to handle the situation. And if you resist, we use force. That's how it goes. So imagine, just imagine, if that happened in the uproar that would be going on right now. You'd have Black Lives Matter protesting. Like I said, forget that the individual that was mentally uh, disabled was getting beat. You would have Benjamin Crump, Al Sharpton, all the same names that we always see because these four black, good Easter Sunday clothes wearing Teens who didn't do anything to anybody were savagely beaten by police or killed by police for no reason at all because they're good kids. They never did anything to anybody. That's exactly what we would see if that would have happened. But I'm going to flip it one more time. I'm going to flip it one more time. Now, imagine if the roles were reversed. And the kid was black. And it was four white teens. Oh, my God. We'd be hearing ha about how it's because Trump got in the White House. Obama would have given 18 speeches about it. The Department of Justice would be involved. Oh, my God. It would be in an uproar. But I have a huge problem that those same people aren't giving those speeches right now. Right I have a huge problem that mainstream media could say, oh, they're just kids with bad home training, 
But if the roles were reversed, you would think that the world was coming to an end and there's this race war coming and everything else because you got four white males or four white individuals that after Trump got elected, this is the world we're going to, right? Because according to some, Trump wants to send everyone back to Africa. Can you not see the difference and how things are viewed based on race? But the fact of the matter is this, that four sick thug individuals, and yes, thug has no color line. Look up the definition if you don't believe me. It doesn't say only a black violent person. No, look it up. Webster's Dictionary. A thug has no color lines. The true problem is that four thugs kidnapped, tortured, a mentally ill individual. And yes, it should be a hate crime, which becomes federal. So to coin a phrase from Denzel Washington in training day, you're federally fucked now. You did a hate crime. You went out, made this individual say, oh, I love black people, F white people. It's a hate crime. But not only that, outside of the hate crime, it's sickening that you would do that. You would take advantage because one of one of these individuals knew the gentleman that they kidnapped and tortured. So you took advantage knowing he was mentally disabled. You put him in a van. You drove him from the suburbs to the projects of Chicago. And you beat him and tortured him. Right? But they're just misguided youth with bad home training. Get that crap out of here, Don Lemon. You want to talk bad home training? If you got a kid saying, yeah, instead of yes, sir, yes, ma'am, that's bad home training. If you got a kid who doesn't know how to respect his elders, that's bad home training. But to beat and torture someone, man, Don Lemon, go somewhere with that. All right, I want to switch gears, and I want to bring on uh, Fonda Bryant. Uh, she lives down in Charlotte, North Carolina. And here's a little side story about Fonda. A lot of people don't know. Uh, she's actually the daughter of legendary blues singer uh, Johnny Taylor, who had some great hits. You know, Who's Making Love to Your Old Lady? All the great hits way back. You know, again, it's my birthday. I'm 44. And I remember some of those songs that Johnny Taylor sung. But outside of having a, a famous dad. She's a huge, huge advocate of mental health issues. And I want to bring her on the line, let her tell a brief story about herself. And then we're going to talk about what happened in Fort Lauderdale. And we're going to talk about Chicago and those four individuals kidnapping and torturing a mentally ill person. All right. Joining me at this time on Beyond the Badge is Fonda Bryan, and she's a mental health advocate out of Charlotte, North Carolina. And I want to welcome her to Beyond the Batch. Fonda, how are you this evening? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? And thank you for having me on the show. Hey, a pleasure, a pleasure. And I know you and I have, have talked in the past about mental health issues, and I know you're a big advocate down in Charlotte. So how did you become involved in uh, being an advocate for the mentally challenged? Well, in 1995, um, I was working at Caroline's Medical Center as a pharmacist tech, and um, I was going through some issues, had no idea 
that I was um, going through some mental health uh, problems myself. Um, um, I had to take some time off from work, got an evaluation, and started going to outpatient um, therapy here in Charlotte, and um, it wasn't working. I was going, but I still wasn't feeling good. I still had these symptoms of I'm a loser. I um, I'm, I was hopeless. I felt worthless, and my, the suicidal thoughts started really, really getting heavier and heavier as time went on. So to make a long story short, on Valentine's Day 1995, um, I had decided that life wasn't worth living anymore, that my family would be better off without me, that, uh, you know, my son would do better off without me, and I decided to end my own life. But before I did that, I called my aunt and I told her, I said, hey, um, you can have my shoes because we both love shoes, and when she heard that, she knew something was wrong. So had no idea that she was going to have me involuntarily committed, didn't even know anything about stuff like that. So I was involuntarily committed on February 14th, 1995, handcuffed by a uh, Charlotte Mecklenburg police officer, taken to a mental health facility where I stayed a week. And um, after I got out, you know, I realized that I had some things going on with myself, but I also realized how bad the culture is surrounding mental health because when I called my mother and told her that I was in a psychiatric hospital, the first thing my mother said was, you need to be stronger. And that's kind of like the the cry within our own culture, the black culture, is that that's a sign of weakness. We don't talk about mm-hmm. it. And it was only until I went through what I did that I find out that mental health issues ran on both sides of my family. And it, it was terrible that I had to wait until something t- until I was in crisis to find out. So since then, I have been an advocate for mental health, but really uh, in the last it would be three years in March that I joined a mental health foundation called NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And they have one here in Charlotte, but they have affiliates across the country in Georgia. They have state ones, and then they have the local affiliates. So right. I volunteer with NAMI, and then I just got elected to the state board of NAMI, where I will be able to do a lot more. So that's where I come to now is from a personal experience and wanting to make a change and wanting to make a difference with mental health. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting you brought that up. And, you know, me, you know, being as as old as I am and you're around the same age, you're right. In the black community, you don't really hear about mental health. You just, oh, you need to be stronger. Oh, you need your butt whooped. Oh, you need this. You know, and, um, you know, my mom actually owns a mental health facility in, in Carolina, and the majority of her patients are actually black. And even, you know, when she started running this facility, I was thinking, wait a minute, this doesn't happen schizophrenia, bipolar, it doesn't happen in the black community, but we're wrong. Now, you, you definitely heard by now, of course, what happened in Fort Lauderdale uh, with Esteban Santiago, a former uh, soldier who had done some tours in Iraq, came back. His family and friends said he was different when he got back. He actually went and told the FBI there was something going on in his head. But can you talk about PTSD? Because I don't think a lot of people realize how serious PTSD really is. It's very serious. Um, post-traumatic stress disorder um, is a very serious thing. It has a lot to do with trauma, whether you have witnessed uh, violence, whether you have been um, sexually assaulted. Post-traumatic stress disorder is no joke. And, and, the, and the really fascinating thing about post-traumatic stress 
we have triggers, like with me having depression, I have triggers that, you know, I have to watch out for. We have to set boundaries, you know, things like that. It's the same thing with post-traumatic stress, which is one of the more serious mental health conditions. With post-traumatic stress, when these soldiers come back, something as simple as a car horn blowing or a smell or a, 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 I mean, a being in a, I mean, it's just all kind of things that can can trigger post-traumatic stress. And it's the kind of thing that it's kind of like you're going along and you'll be fine for a little bit. But anything can trigger it, especially to remind you of something heinous that you might have seen. And these soldiers are going over there and seeing these horrible, horrible things. And then they're coming back with no mental health at all or very little. And then all of a sudden something might trigger what they have gone through or remind them of what they've been through over there and then they come back and they will act it out over here and unfortunately that's what happened to this young man and countless others what with the young man in Dallas he was a he came back from the military and you saying that over and over and over these these uh, soldiers are coming back to the United States not getting any help getting very little help and these are the kind of things that happen these these shootings and things like that and they could have all been avoided, Vincent, if people would, number one, they know the signs, and number two, if they would realize that these veterans just don't need to come back and say, oh, okay, we're going to send you out in the society. They need to help them as soon as they come back in the United States. Right. And, you know, it's it's interesting you mentioned uh, triggers because I talked earlier, like certain sounds and me being from military to police, a certain sound that still to this day make me jump. You know, a lot of people don't realize that they don't actually pick up on it but it's those certain things like you said those triggers that you have to watch out for and uh you know to this day i don't like people sitting behind me in the car or walking up behind me and touching me there's there's certain things that could set me off very easily but i want to uh switch gears and talk about the fbi there in anchorage because they they talked to this individual and me personally i think they missed quite a bit because he told them what was going on and i think the only thing they came back with was hey, there's no ties to terrorism. So do you think there was better opportunity for them to say, hey, we need to refer him to a mental health professional that can actually diagnose him? Definitely, definitely. And one of the things that I am very proud of and to be a part of is that the organization I volunteer with, NAMI, they are training uh, law enforcement across the country in a, in a, a program called CIT. It stands for Crisis Intervention Team. And what it is is they take uh, officers. It's 40 hours of training, uh, mental health training and addiction. They train them in mental health and addiction. They meet people who have mental health problems. They talk to people. They go through scenarios. Like, for instance, they will learn what it's like for a person who has schizophrenia. They will um, have another officer talking to them. They'll have another officer with a piece of paper rolled up, and they'll be reading the script saying, why are you talking to her? You shouldn't be talking to her. You can't trust her. CIT is very important. They started it in Memphis, Tennessee, when a mental health, uh, a person with a mental health disorder was shot and killed by police. And the family and the community went to the police department and said, hey, it's got to be a different way to handle people with mental health problems instead of just automatically assuming that they're criminals. So CIT was born, and it 
it's a slow process because there's so many officers, but they're slowly getting to every single officer in the United States and training them to understand about mental health disorders and to be able to spot somebody in crisis and to help them. And that's something I feel like that the FBI can use, especially when you're dealing with soldiers and, and, and learning to know the difference between somebody who's a, a threat as far as a terrorist and somebody who just needs mental health help. And I think that could be a tool for the FBI because to me, they, they have to take some responsibility for this because the man obviously had mental health problems and they just dismissed it. Well, as long as he's not a terrorist, we can let him go. And yeah. he still had problems. And that's, they have to take some of the blame for that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to your point, um, and I've talked about this on the show in the past, you know, having been in the streets, having been a police officer, there is no certain look for mental health. And a lot of mm-hmm. times police get confused with, you know, some of the symptoms of mental illness are the same symptoms of, say, someone high on crack cocaine or methamphetamines. So for police, it's easy to associate, well, this person is just high. They're just, you know, out of their mind because they just had a bad batch or something. And we usually use the same amount of force that we would for someone that is high on narcotics, not knowing this person is mentally ill or mentally challenged. And then, of course, you have that tragic outcome. So speaking of uh, mentally challenged, mentally ill people, you heard about Chicago and what happened with the individual there that was kidnapped and tortured for several hours by these four individuals. I have another word for them. Uh, but do you think he was an easy target simply because he did have a mental challenge? Oh, yes. And see, this is what I keep trying to say. The media fuels mental health, and they always put us in a negative light. And that's one of the things that I'm trying to do as an advocate. I'm trying to change that perception of us. And the thing is, I tell people all the time when we have these where you look on CNN or MSNBC and you see under the bottom uh, violence, uh, mass murder, mental health, or mental illness, those things, as soon as you say that, the stigma goes through the roof. And people just don't even realize that fact that people who have a mental health condition are more prone to violence than the other way around. And that's the perfect example of what happened in Chicago. That uh, he had a mental he had a mental health issue, mental health issues. Uh, he was an easy target and they took advantage of him and that made me so mad and so angry because the outcry is not the same as what happened in um, Florida, which I understand it was five people that were murdered and things like that. But if you really think about it, it's the, it's kind of the same thing. It's like, okay, if this young man would have gotten help, none of that would have happened. But in the same breath, you got people who are mean and vicious who are taking advantage of somebody with a mental health condition, and people aren't saying, oh, this is an outrage. We should stop things like that. People who have a mental health condition deserve the same respect. It's not the same. So yeah. we have to change the culture within mental health and society because it, it's right now, like I said, people who have a mental health condition are really being, it's not persecuted, but there is no empathy and compassion. I'll just put it to you that way. To me, there's no empathy, very little empathy and very little compassion for people who have a mental health condition. Yeah, no, I, I would agree wholeheartedly because, you know, in watching the news, especially CNN, you know, it was more that, oh, these four individuals were misguided youth that had bad home training. You know, mm-hmm. I don't, I, I, to me, you know, not saying yes, sir, Yes, ma'am, it's bad home training. But to kidnap 
torture someone for hours. That to me is just pure evil. And it, to me, it's sad that they got more focus than mm -hmm. the actual victim of this crime. And that, that to me is just sad in itself. It is. And we deal with that. We deal with that every single day. And one of the things is I'm very proud that our police chief here really realizes the crisis that this country is in in mental health. And Chief Putney, I went to him two years ago and I said, Chief Putney, what are we going to do about mental health in Charlotte? And he said, Fonda, until we get every single officer trained in CIT, they're going to have to take the mental health first aid class, which is a free class that I have taken myself. It teaches you how to spot someone in crisis and to be able to handle the situation so you can get them to professional help. But I told him, I said, that's still not enough, Chief Putney. I said, these officers need to see what a face of a person looks like who has a mental health condition, not just the ones on the street, but people who work, who have children, who take care of themselves. So he has me coming now and speaking to the rookie class, and I did my first um I did, I went and spoke to the officers for the first time, the rookie class back in November. And I spoke to 35 rookies and told them my story of mental health and suicide. And the first thing I, I asked them was, uh, the first thing I asked them was, I said, Hey, do I look like a person who has depression? And all of them said, no, you don't. And when I told them that, it, it, it kind of let them see that, hey, the faces of a person who has a mental health condition aren't the faces that you think. Right. Yeah, I, I think, you know, again, it goes back to what I said, especially in policing. People get in their mindset that there's a certain look of what crazy looks like or, you know, they think, oh, they have to be talking to themselves or – or uh, and please don't think I, I use the uh, – word crazy in any negative way, but I'm just talking as society, you know, um, oh, they have to be in a straight jacket. They have to be talking to themselves. They have to be on medication. They have to, you know, and everyone thinks that that's what mental illness looks like, but exactly. it doesn't. It doesn't at all. And that, and that's why, like I said, being an advocate, I love it because it's so challenging. Because when you really get up there and share your story and they see you dress nice and they see that you're carrying yourself in a fine manner and the fact that you work and you take care of your kids and stuff. A lot of times when I get up and share my story, someone will come up to me and say, I have, a family member has, because a lot of people suffer in silence. A lot of people suffer in silence and they don't get the help. And until we make people in this country feel comfortable and let them know that a mental health disorder is no different than you having diabetes, heart problems, because the brain is an organ and it's the most powerful organ in our bodies. And it can get sick, but guess what? You can recover and you can go on and have a good life. But as long as society thinks we're crazy, we're insane, we're nuts, we're mass killers, we're never going to break that state. It's going to stay exactly where it is. And to me, we have 117 Americans dying daily by suicide. That's 819 people a week, 3,270 a month. And that is not including the 22 veterans a day that take their own life. So we're in an yeah. epidemic in this country, and we got to wake up. We got to wake yeah. up. Yeah, and, you know, the, the veteran, of course, the veteran suicide rate is near and dear to my heart, being a veteran. And I actually did the uh, the 22 challenge, of course, the 22 push-ups for every veteran that dies daily in this country. Um, just about at a time, is there a website or a Twitter account or anything where people can find you? 
Well, you can find me on Twitter as ProudMom72. You can find me on Facebook as Fonda Bryant. I also run the NAMI um, Charlotte uh, Facebook page, and I also run the NAMI Charlotte Twitter page. So I'm all over social media trying to get people to wake up and realize that we have an epidemic in this country, that a mental health condition can affect any of us. As a matter of fact, one out of four adults have a mental health disorder, one out of five children. So it can be your relatives, it can be you, it can be uh, a co-worker, but it affects everybody. And people need to wake up out of this thing of, oh, it doesn't happen to me, it doesn't affect me, but it does. Because what happened in Florida is going to happen again if we don't start recognizing mental health and getting these veterans and people who have mental health problems help. All right, that was Fonda Bryant. Thank you so much for joining me here on Beyond the Batch. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Wow, that was a very interesting perspective coming from someone that actually not only suffered from mental illness, but is actually an advocate of mental illness. And, you know, I urge any police department in this country to take mental illness seriously, because like I said, as police officers, we get into this mindset that anybody that's acting up is a criminal, that they're high on drugs, but you just heard from Fonda. That's not always the case. So I want to thank her for being on the show. That was great. I want to thank you for listening. But of course, before I go, I have to do roll call. And unfortunately, I have to discuss the very first officer uh, killed in the line of duty in the year 2017. And it's Detective Chad Parquet, North Las Vegas Police Department. He died this past Saturday. January the 7th, uh, not uh, based on gunfire. He was actually in a a motor vehicle accident. Uh, The vehicle uh, that hit him was driving down the wrong way, struck him head on, causing another vehicle to actually hit him as well. And when they extracted Detective Chad Parquet from the vehicle, they took him to the hospital there in Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, where he died 12 hours later from his injuries. He survived of course, by his wife, children, and brothers and sisters. So I want to say Godspeed to him, my prayers to his family. Thank you for your service, 10 years with the Las Vegas Police Department. Thank you for your service to that community. I want to thank you, my loyal listeners, for listening tonight, and I will see you next week right here, Beyond the Badge, RadioInfluence.com. To continue the conversation, get updates on the show, And to find out when you can see him on television, follow Vincent on Twitter at Vincent Hill TV. That's at Vincent Hill TV. This has been Beyond the Badge on Radio Influence. Chef Brian Duffy here. I've got a new show called Duffified Live that's unlike anything you've ever heard. Each week, I'm going to be talking to some of my friends, some people I've never even met before. We're going to be talking about people that I meet on the road through some of my experiences. We're talking about restaurants, talking about great stories, great guests, wild adventures, the whole nine yards. Get Duffified Live with me, Chef Brian Duffy, each week on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and RadioInfluence.com.